We're going to turn to God's Word now and read from the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Now, I actually was away um, Monday through till Tuesday. I I, I regularly get invited to go to a a conference for preachers. And there it so happened that we were looking at the book of Revelation. And um, they gave us lots of different ways that we might preach it and different themes that we might bring up. And one of the preaching plans was how to preach right through the book of Revelation in 28 weeks. It's all right. We're not going to do that. Um, But we are going to spend a little bit of time on it. We started it last week. We looked at the first chapter, and I'm actually going to skip right to the end. Because actually, that's what Revelation's all about. It's about the end. So we're going to read the second last chapter, chapter 21. So let's pray. Father, as we read your word of promise to us, we pray that these ancient words, with all their imagery that we perhaps struggle with, might just melt our hearts today in love for you and in hope of all that you have promised. Amen. Let's read God's word from Revelation chapter 21. John is having this vision that he is giving to the church. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came down and said to me, Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. 
The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who had talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, as wide, as high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurements and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper. The city was made of pure gold as glass. The foundations of the city were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation with jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amorist, the twelve gates were twelve perils. Each gave each gate was made of a single peril. The gate The street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written on the Lamb's book of life. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word. I don't know about you, but if there was a picture of this week that made me stop and think, it was the picture of groups of refugees getting onto boats in the November storms in the English Channel. Whatever the politics or the thoughts about that, it really breaks our heart, doesn't it? Just to see people going through that. And it left me thinking initially, what terrors must they be fleeing from that they are driven to do that and to take that risk? But the interesting thing was on the BBC's website, there was a very short audio clip by the author Michael Murpurgo. Some of you will know him because he writes a lot of children's books. And Michael Murpurgo had almost a poem written as an imagined conversation between some of the folk on one of those boats. If you haven't heard it, go listen to it. Because it gave me a different way to look at all of this. Because He imagined a conversation that wasn't about fear of what they were leaving, but about the hope of what they were going to. As they began to talk about Britain, about Britain as being their place of asylum, their safe place, of imagining that people would welcome them when they got off that boat, 
that people would give them a safe place to stay, that they would have a land that they could call home, that they would have a freedom to practice their religion where they had been abused before, where they would have no fear of persecution, where they would be able to express their political views without any fear that somebody would knock the door. And suddenly thinking about those people driven not by fear, but just as much by hope of a better tomorrow, of a belief that there could be a better life, a better future, a better land, a better city for them and for their family. And that hope of the future was driving them on to endure what was almost unendurable in the journeys and the refugee camps and the danger that they faced. It also left me humbled, and at this point I will risk being a bit political, with realizing that their hopes and dreams were in our hands. We sometimes moan about the land we live in, don't we? And then we realize it's all some people want. The book of Revelation is written in the end of the first century. And it's a time where God's people are going through a terrible time, a dangerous time, a desperate time. They are being persecuted for their Christian faith. They are being misunderstood by their families, many of whom will be pagans. They are being rejected by the cities that they live in because they will not honor the city gods and the emperor. It is a dangerous time to own the name of Jesus. They are suffering. The emperor Domitian is the first emperor who organizes an oppression, a persecution of Christians. They are scared. They are being killed. Some of them are not enduring. They're giving up. They're going back to their paganism. And here is John giving them a vision, a vision that is given to seven small churches, which gives them a hope for the future. Tells them of a better land, of a better future. You see, when you read the book of Revelation out of that context, it can seem like a book for nutters, can't it? All these wild images of beasts and monsters and scrolls and all the rest of it. And the only people who seem to be fascinated by it are, are folk with their conspiracy theories who are trying to work out the date of the end of the world. And, and, and we shy away from all of that. But it makes much more sense when you read it remembering that context and you read the last chapter first. Because John is giving them a vision of a new heaven new That's his gift to them. Giving them a vision of a beautiful place to live where there is no tears or death or mourning or no crying and no pain. I can have the what he's offering them is a living hope. And that living hope is a hope for life. 
It's not speculative. It's not a magic code that you can work out the date so you know when to buy your lottery ticket or anything like that. It's very, very practical because the question Revelation is asking, and we would see that if we'd looked at the first few chapters, but maybe go back and look at them at some point, is this. How do we encourage a Christian people not to give up, to keep serving, to keep loving, to keep enduring, to keep close to Jesus, not to go back to their godless life, and the answer that John gives is to give them a life-transforming hope of what God is going to do in the future. Now, Revelation isn't just panning people on the head and saying everything will be fine. In fact, the last 20 chapters before we got to the last chapter have been saying quite the opposite. They've been saying that the world that hates you and is persecuting you may well get more violent, more nasty, more brutish, more unjust before God brings those final days where there is so much hope. But what John wants to give them is this promise in Jesus. And as I explore this with you today, I, I want to offer the same to you. Whatever you're going through just now, whatever discomfort, whatever discouragement, whatever pain, whatever trouble, whatever grief, whatever trials... To say this to you, stay close to Jesus. Trust him. Go on with him and be faithful with him, no matter how tough it gets, because you too have this living hope, this living hope. The central image of Revelation 21, and it, it is a metaphor. This whole thing is a metaphor that helps us to understand the truth. But the central thing is the holy city. And look what it says, verse 2 here, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And that's repeated in verse 10, the holy city coming down out of heaven from God. Now here's the strange thing about using that as a central metaphor of hope. It's not how most Christians think. You see, most Christians today think that our hope is to go up to heaven. When we die, we go up to heaven. We leave this earth and this body and we go up to heaven. But here is John giving a hope and he says the opposite is true. It's about heaven coming down to us. That's God's master plan. Heaven coming down. The holy city comes down from God to the earth. And it's an image actually of the central hope that Christ returns bit odd, isn't it? But I want to suggest to you this is not unimportant. Heaven coming down to earth to make everything new. That's why we pray, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May all that we believe about heaven come on the earth. And if you think about it in this terms, if you think about the gospel stories, and see, when other parts of the Bible confuse you, I would always say, come back to the story about Jesus, right? Because that's, that's the bit that we can get our heads around. That's the bit that we're given. Think about it this way. Jesus died on the cross, and then he went to heaven and was with his father. Is that the story? Is it? Is that the Easter story? Jesus died and he went to heaven. And then he was happy because he was with God. The end. And we can die 
and go to heaven too because of that. Is that the story? No, it's not the story, is it? Because the story of Easter is that Jesus died and he rose again on the earth. That's the Easter story, isn't it? It's not just that Jesus died and he paid for our debt, so he went to heaven and we can go to heaven too. Jesus rose again. That's the center of the Christian hope. And that seems a bit strange until you think of it this way. The Bible says that when Jesus rose again, Paul says that was the first fruit. That was the deposit. That was the first installment of God's great promise. That one day, all of us would rise again too. What happened to Jesus would happen to all of God's people. We would have a new body. We would rise and we would walk and we would talk. It's why at funerals, we do not say as we're committing someone into the hands of God, oh, that's it, they've gone to heaven, do we? What do I say at every single funeral service I ever take? It's these same words. We may sing the same song sometimes, and we don't always sing the same, you know, the Lord's my shepherd and abide with me. But we always say the same words. We commit them in the sure and the certain hope to the resurrection, to eternal life, through Jesus Christ, who also died and was buried, but who rose again. What does that mean? It means that the final hope of Christians isn't that we'll die and go to heaven, that's the end of it. It is that we will not live some eternal life floating on a cloud in a disembodied body and nothing there. It's actually that God will give us new bodies just as he gave to Jesus. And we often say, what's that like? I can't get my head around that. Maybe you're feeling that just now. I can't get my head around that. And again, I would just simply say, see if you can't get your head around it, just read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And read the resurrection account of what happened to Jesus after he died. Now, if you notice that, you see Jesus, and he's different. And yet, they recognize him. Well, eventually. And they say, it really is you. And they talk with him, and they walk with him, and they touch him, and they have dinner, (sighs) fish suppers, a lot. It's it's strange. You think of all the things that the Bible might want to tell us about the resurrection life, and all the questions we've got, and the one thing that the Bible keeps coming back to was the eight things, bread and fish and wine. And it's actually quite true of the Bible. The Bible, all the time, it, 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 it wants to describe what eternal life is like. It keeps talking about eating. Banquets and kingdom halls and, and feasts. And I, I just love that. You know, people will sometimes say all that talk of, of the life, the eternal life is just pie in the sky, wouldn't they? It was not pie in the sky, it's fish in the dish. It's fish in the dish. It's eating fish suppers. I can cope with that. It's not hovering in clouds. It's physical, bodily. It's hugs. It's walks. It's dancing. And it's fish suppers. You know, Revelation 21 gives us some of this. It picks up on this whole idea of a a new creation. And we think, what will it look like? And well, 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 we know what creation looks like when it's good. Because that's what God made right at the beginning in Genesis. So when we try to think, what will it be like when God makes everything new and good? Well, it'll look like the good world that God created. It won't be 
floating on clouds. It will be physical, because that's good. Now, there's a whole other lot of things in, in, in this passage that I, I just find absolutely fantastic. You know, it doesn't just say that there's no crying and no tears and those things. We can perhaps begin to understand what that is. It says weirdly that there is, verse 1, no longer any sea. Now, I never worked out why it was that, that John wanted to say when that heaven comes to earth and everything is perfected, there will not be any sea. And so I read the commentaries and it, it told me a whole lot of stuff about the fact that the Jewish people didn't like the sea. They thought the sea was a place of, of, of evil. It was where the, the, the Phoenicians invaded from. It's where the Philistines, the sea peoples came from. And so they looked to a day where there wouldn't be any fear. There wouldn't be any sea. And I didn't really understand how that felt, although I, I did the academic stuff until I, again, imagined an immigrant in the channel. And you say, what will it be like when, when God makes the world anew? And you say, there won't be any sea. Suddenly, this becomes real. Just like it will say later on that they will not have to lock the gates. Nobody will be nicking your stuff. Nobody will be breaking in. And we know a little bit of that if you've lived in a community where everybody cares and loves for one another and no one has to lock their gates or their doors. And some of you maybe grew up in communities like that, not many. We begin to get a, a glimpse of what it is. Imagine the best things about this world. Imagine the wonderful things, the wonderful times, the wonderful relationships. And now imagine them without all the pain and the sadness that sometimes accompanies them. And you are beginning to see what it is that God has in store for us. You know, we worry just now about a new variant of COVID. They're calling it Omicron, aren't they? You know, if, you, if you know any languages, Omicron means O minor, the little O. And I just was reading this just now, and it says, I am the Alpha, and I am the Omega. I'm bigger than them. Verse 5 says that he is making everything new. But it doesn't say that he's making a whole bunch of new things. He's saying he's taking the things that are and making them new. All the best about creation it is the beauty, the wonder, the brilliant moments, the society we enjoy, which we know is broken and painful, and therefore it can never satisfy us, and we yearn for it to be whole. And that is what is being offered here in the holy city that is coming down from God. Verse 3, it says, a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. You see, right from the beginning in the Bible, and we, this is why we did the first three chapters, or four, four chapters of Genesis, because you remember, God made everything and he said it's good. There was no pain in it. And in that image, God walked with Adam and Eve. They walked in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with God. And that allowed them to have a perfect relationship with each other. And then what happened was that sin came into the garden. And the first thing that happened was their relationship with God was broken by sin. And that resulted in their relationship with each other and with nature and everything being broken. But here at the heart of it, it is saying that we will have a perfect relationship again with God. God will no longer be at a distance from us. He will live with us. And that's the 
mic's dropping out here. Well, I'll just use this one. It means I have to stand still. Or not. But I, I, I love this verse. It, it says, verse 22, I did not see a, st- a temple in the city because the Lord God and the Lamb are its temple. And I, I, just, I just see all, all, all these ministers and priests and popes when they, when, when they get to that great day and they look and think, we're unemployed. There's no temple in this city. No, John Lennon, when, he, when he, he gave his image of what a perfect world would be like, what did he say? Imagine there's no religion. And that was said so that it would offend all the religious people and it would offend all the churches that he was imagining a world with no religion. But here's the thing. The Bible says when the Lord returns, there will be no religion. There will not be any sacrifices. There will not be any temples. There will not be any churches. There will not be any priests. John Lennon is right. But why won't there be any religion? Because everybody will know God fully. And on that point, John Lennon is dead wrong. Imagine a world where there isn't a need for a church because you don't need a sacred space to retreat into because every space is sacred. Well, you don't need a place where people are free to talk about God because the presence of God is everywhere. Well, you don't need to have something that gets you into the right spirit because God just walks with you. And you know his peace and his love every minute of every day. That is what is on offer here. And the other thing to notice is this. What is the central image here? It's a city. Now, What's strange about this is that you might have thought it would be a garden. You know, when perfection comes, we'll have peace. We'll be away from all these people, all this noise, all this complications. It'll be like Genesis again, walking in the garden, just two of us with God, not with any people at all. But you know what this city is saying? Actually, God is going to take up all our relationships, all our living together redeemed It will be full of people that will not shut its gates because people will not need to be defensive. People will not need to be territorial. People will live no fear of each other. There will not be locks. There will be no more loneliness. There will be no more cliques. There will be no more exclusion. All the things that we have loved about people without all the problems. You know, the only one thing, worst thing, about having people in your life is not having people in your life. But either way, you get pain, don't you? Why do we need this? Why do we need this vision of the future? Well, sometimes folk have said of the Christian church, the problem with the Christian church is it spends so long thinking about heaven, doesn't actually think about the world it lives in. Have you heard that? You're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly use. But remember that the opposite is true. Because what John is saying to this battered church is this. If you have this vision of the glorious hope of the gospel that is coming down to the earth, that this is the future and this is the end of the story, then you will be free to live sacrificial lives right now. Because you will not be holding on to your little bit of joy and your little bit of turf to the exclusion of everybody else. 
You will be free to live lives for God no matter the cost. You will be useful in the transformation of the society around you. Because you're not trying to grab onto little bits of happiness no matter what, but you're willing to see that those little bits of happiness point to that which you've been promised. And so you can live differently. And you know the thing is, it worked. Because it enabled the church not just to endure its suffering and stay loyal, but that tiny little church, those little Christian minorities, transformed the whole world until the emperor himself became a believer. And the kingdoms of the world became the kingdoms of the Lord. They struck them down, they rose up. They persecuted them and told them to be silent about Christ. They shouted all the more. Until Tertullian once wrote, the seed of the martyrs, sorry, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because as people saw how the Christians endured, they began to say, what have they got? What's their promise? What's their hope? How can they do that? And they began to want to know more and more about Jesus Christ. That hope of a new heaven and a new earth. That belief that one day the Lord will come and he will judge and bring justice on the earth. And therefore what we do today matters. What we invest in today matters. Because one day there will be justice. If you are in a place where you are being persecuted and your persecutors win and there is no end to it. Then you look for that day that the Lord will return. And there will be justice for the poor. There will be justice for the oppressed. There will be justice for the person that has been killed or murdered and nobody ever found out who did it. All of this makes sense. You know, we will close our service today by singing glory, glory, hallelujah. That song was written at a pretty terrible time. It was written in, I think, 1861 in the United States in the midst of slavery and oppression when the huge war was going on which was killing many thousands of people. And Julia Ward Howe, who wrote it, wrote this hymn which we will sing which talks of God's judgment to come. The Lord is coming in all his glory. But she didn't write it in order that folk would say, oh, well, that's fine. Therefore, we can just sit and don't worry about it. God will sort it all out so we can have pie in the sky when we die and that'll be fine. She rather wrote it as the battle hymn of the Republic. As Christ died to make men holy, let us live to make men free. And it was written at a time that it was going to encourage people to carry on with the fight that they were going on, that they would liberate the slaves and that they would make a difference in the world. And Julia Ward Howe, after she wrote this and after the Civil War was over, went on in that vein. She became a campaigner for women's rights and for social justice and actually for an end to war in pacifism too. It was a hope which drove people on. So how do we get this? How do we know this hope is ours? It's interesting that it starts, as we've said, with that part in verse 3. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. Where does that take us? 
takes us to God coming and dwelling among us. God with us. Emmanuel. It takes us to that Christmas story. But it takes us somewhere else. Because as we said from Genesis, one of the effects of sin was that there was a separation. People didn't have that relationship with God anymore. They were separated from Him. And religion was all about trying to get to God, trying to find a way of having a relationship with God by building bigger temples, doing more sacrifices, building big towers. But here, at the heart of the gospel, God came to them in Jesus Christ. And as he died on the cross, he cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that point, Jesus was taking on himself that separation from God. That separation from God caused by sin. That separation from God that is the root of all the pain and all the wrong relationships and all the brokenness and all the selfishness and all the injustice that followed, as Genesis tells us. He took all that on himself and died on the cross. And as he died on the cross and took that, cur that curse, we're told by the gospel writers that something happened in the temple. Because in the temple, there was the Holy of Holies, which signified the presence of God. And then there was a huge big curtain, which signified that people were far from that presence. And only once a year could the high priest break through. And we are told at that point that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. In Jesus dying, God not just came and lived with us, which is the heart of the incarnation, but God broke down the barriers. He took the pain, he took the sin that we might know him. And that hope that we have is that as we accept that Christ died for us, then we accept also that promise that one day as he rose again, we too will rise with him into this new creation, into this new place, this new heaven and this new earth. And that's why for Christians, this isn't pie in the sky when you die. This is Jesus. He is our hope. He is our alpha and our omega. In the book of Revelation invites us to see just how big this victory in Jesus is that we might stay close to him, that we might walk with him, that we might trust in him, that we might give our lives to him, that we might be willing to fight through the snow to be in his presence with his people, that we might be able to get up when it's inconvenient, that we might be able to make the phone calls when it's tough, that we might be able to speak of people about Jesus when our hearts don't want to. Because we have this vision of all that he has offered and all that he is bringing when this world is made new again. This is the Advent hope. Come, Lord Jesus, come.